0: Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Second Peter chapter 1. It's towards the end of the New Testament. It's always great to have you with us. You guys soaking up this weather? How many would think it's getting too hot already? Too hot already. Oh my goodness. You guys aren't true desert rats, are you? So, yeah, it's it's going to really get hot here. The the uh, furnace is going to be turned up really quick soon, so we're soaking up what we've got now. Hey, this is our Doubts and Answers teaching series. This is week number two. We're going to talk about really answering the question, is the Bible reliable? We'll be looking at Second uh, Peter chapter 1. We'll look at verses 16 through 21. Now, it's important to not only know what you believe, and what's interesting is that I come across a lot of Christians who don't even know what they believe, and because you start asking them questions about what they believe, and so you need to know what you believe, but you also need to know why you believe what you believe. Would you agree with that? Because if, uh, if you neglect the why, you will drift from the what. Um, because it doesn't become, your, your faith doesn't have a good solid foundation, and you're going to drift from the what when you are questioned by skeptics that are smarter than you or when you go through crisis, if you don't have a good why behind the what of your beliefs. One of the reasons why we're having our youth sit in here with us, uh, Ryan uh, Davis, our youth guy, youth pastor, thought it would be really a good idea because of this series and uh, Eighty percent of our uh, evangelical kids, our Christian kids, when they go off to college, defect from the faith. Typically, they don't defect from the faith because of strong uh, arguments against their faith, but it's usually dogmatic assertions. It's not defensible arguments, but dogmatic assertions, typically in an atmosphere of sneering. And so that's why it's really, really important that our high school students and you as parents really help them. And by the way, you don't start when they're in high school. You start building into their life when they're young. And so they need to know not only what they believe, but they need to know why they believe what they believe because uh, there's an attack going to be coming against their life that they're not going to be able to sustain that attack. They're not going to be able to live through that, through crisis and also through the critics and the skeptics. And so that's why we're spending time with this. Uh, And as we're looking at these different questions, and really here's the thesis of of this week, and and probably every week, you can reason to a point of probability that is proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the Bible is reliable and building your life on it is the most brilliant thing you can do. So notice the scale that we've got that's part of that icon for this series. So I believe that as you roll up your sleeves and you don't commit intellectual suicide and you dive into the information that's available to us, there's enough evidence giving validity and veracity to the reality of God's Word, that this is truly God's Word, this is God speaking to us to the point that you will be so convinced that you will make this book the value, the priority, the passion of your life. Um, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God, is fully equipped for every good work. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. You're, you're convinced these are the words of God. God-breathed. And um, it says in Joshua 1, 8, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. Then you'll be able to do everything that is written in it, and you're going to be prosperous and successful. And so I believe, and I want to take you through uh, some evidence that I, I pray that it certainly will, if you're, if you're open-minded enough to really evaluate this evidence, it will tilt the scale in favor of the fact that this is truly God's Word. And uh, that's where we're headed. And so as we kicked off our series last week, as I said, is that the gospel is, is both head sound and heart satisfying. It's not only rational but it's also relational, and you need both parts of that. If you only have the rational side, the, the left-brain side, the analytical side, it becomes a little sterile. It's just dead orthodoxy. you're just going through the motions. But if all you have is the right side, the right side, the relational side, apart from the rational side, uh, you get a little weird, because you start saying God saying things to you that's obviously outside of uh, the pale of orthodoxy and outside of what the Bible teaches, and it just becomes sentimentality. And so, there really is a God. He loves you. He wrote a book, and He wants to communicate with you. And uh, the more you interact with Him through His Word, it is life, uh, life transforming. I mean, I have to, I, let, me, let me confess something here right off the bat. I'm, my wife knows about this. It's a problem I've got. It's... Uh, it's an addiction. I have an addiction. I've been working on this for a real long time and I just can't get over it. I'm so addicted with this book that I can't put it down I spend so much time, and people would say, oh yeah, well you're a pastor, you're supposed to do that. No, 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 no. Before I became a pastor, I couldn't get enough of this. My times alone with God, interacting with Him, listening to messages, memorizing, meditating, reflecting. I mean, if this is truly God's Word to us, God inspired, oh my goodness, this will be the passion of your life. Yeah, but you don't know how difficult, yeah, I know how difficult it is to get into this. But I'll guarantee you that the things that you value, you will prioritize and the things you prioritize, you practice. And it really comes down to, do you really see that this is God speaking to us? These are the words of God to us. And and maybe you don't, so I'm glad you're here. That's where we're going. So uh, I'm glad I got that off my chest yeah but man, I tell you what I take god 's Word around with me, I meditate on it, I reflect on it. He speaks to me so strongly, so powerfully. it is crazy i i I just wouldn 't be able to live without him and my interaction that I have with him through his word, and so uh, I believe that 's normal Christianity, and I hope that you develop the same addiction that I have okay, and that 's what i 'm trying uh, to get with with you and in you through this uh, teaching. So let's pray. We're going to dive into This is a wonderful text. This is just a beautiful text because I've reflected on it all week. So I'm just like, whoo, this is good stuff. I've read it in the past, but this last week God spoke to me really strongly through this. And so I'll give you some defense, defensible arguments for the validity and the veracity of God's holy word. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, what a delight, what an amazing delight it is to to know you and to walk with you and to have you interact with us and to speak to us through your word. Help us to see that in a changing world, we can trust your unchanging word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will not pass away. As it tells us in Matthew 24, 35, help us to see that nothing will be more faith-producing, hope restoring, love awakening like your word. And those who crave intimacy with you will inevitably have a ferocious appetite to read and study the Bible because every word proceeds from your mouth. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. And, uh, I'm already fired up and I haven't even gotten into the text yet. And, uh, So here we go. Here's our text. And I don't even have that after Easter hangover. I mean, I'm still, after Easter, I'm like going hard and strong. Even though I was a little bit overly medicated last weekend because I had my, uh, you know, what I had with my tooth and all that other stuff. But it just didn't even slow me down even in the least bit. I had that root canal. That's what I had. Boy, am I glad that's in the past. I'm feeling much better. So here we go. Here's our text uh, starting in verse... uh, what did I say? Verse 16. I'm not in the right place. Here we are. Now I'm in the right place. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are great words, what he's about to say. So he's talking about we, meaning the disciples. And this is who is speaking here. This is This is Peter, the guy that denied Christ three times, but when Christ resurrected from the grave, he interacted with Jesus. His life was turned completely around and uh, proclaimed to his death, that is, Peter's death, proclaimed Jesus until he died. But listen to what he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. (laughs) That's good. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, when he received honor and glory, now he's going to describe a little bit of what, what went down and how he encountered and how he was an eyewitness of his majesty. And he's going to describe this. Uh, you guys familiar with the story of the Mount Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount and they saw Jesus transfigured? Well, that's what he's describing here. So he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory of This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure. Now now think about this. He's just defined or described this experience, this encounter that he had with God, and he heard this voice from heaven. They heard this voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes on and says... And we have something more sure. What? How could you be more sure than to, to see Jesus transfigured and hear a voice from heaven say, Hey, this is my son in whom I am well pleased? I mean, they had this unbelievable encounter, and he says, But we have something more sure. And he says, The prophetic word, we're talking about the Bible here, to which you will do well to pay attention. And notice how he describes this, it's this pretty, pretty phenomenal as to a lamp shining in a dark place so he's saying god's word the prophetic word the old testament is like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns what happens when the day dawns sun starts coming up okay so the sun's coming up but notice what else happens not only is the sun coming up but he says and the morning star rises in your hearts who's the morning star it's actually Jesus. In fact, you can know that in Revelation twenty two sixteen. You can put that in the margin of your Bible. Uh, Revelation twenty two sixteen refers to Jesus as the morning star. And so, as you study prophecy, this is what he's saying. As you, you, this is more sure. As you look into prophecy, as you study the Old Testament, the Old Testament is going to point to Jesus, and then all of a sudden, it's going to dawn on you. You're going to go, "Whoa! It's about Jesus." And, and he's saying this is more sure than the experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Pretty amazing. And then he says in verse 20, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Hey, these guys just didn't make this stuff up. In fact, if you've ever un- tried to understand what it, what it means when we say, when, when we believe that the Bible is inspired of God. How many of you have ever heard that word before? A lot of times people say, well... There's a lot of things that are inspired. No, no, no. Here's what it means to be inspired, this next verse. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's what it means to be inspired by God. I mean, we we all get inspired. We watch a movie. We listen to a song. It's not talking about that kind of inspiration. It's talking about an inspiration where people are carried along by the Holy Spirit not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. This is God speaking through these men who wrote this down, and we've got it right here in our hands. This is the Word of the Lord, and uh, that's our text. So let's walk through this. Now, if you've been with me for any length of time, maybe it's been a while since I've taught this, and I I teach a form of this in the Game of Life class, but... uh, I use this uh, acrostic to to help me when people come up and question me about the scripture. Well, that's not you know. How do you know that's really God's word? And when people begin to ask me those questions, and so I use this acrostic. It's it's preach, P R E A C H. It's easy for me to remember, and I kind of kind of roll through it like this. Well, yeah. Well, it's certainly God's word because it's prophetically powerful. It's remarkably reliable with manuscript evidence. It's established uh, by eyewitness accounts, it's archaeologically accurate, it's credited by millions of changed lives, and it's honored by historians, uh, early historians. And so I kind of walk through that, and there's m- many more, it's also... Uh, scientifically sound. It gives us wisdom that works in our life. And so those are kind of the, the tools that I use, memory tools, to kind of help me to remember. And I'm going to walk you through uh, most of those right now. And here's the first one. It is prophetically powerful. Now, some of these points are from our text. You'll see it. They're pretty obvious. And some of these are just from the fuller context of Scripture as we kind of explore all of Scripture. And uh, so, this is just uh, this text that we read here is just our launch pad here this morning. So, the Bible is prophetically powerful, and we see this in verse 19. I made that very clear. He says, Hey, we encountered Jesus on this Mount Transfiguration. We heard the voice from heaven, and yet there's, there's a more powerful witness Old Testament prophecy. And, uh, and so, it is prophetically powerful. Here's what's amazing about this book. It was written over a period of time of about 1,600 years, fifteen, sixteen hundred 1,600 years by 40 authors, 66 books. One common theme goes completely through this book. There's one common theme, and the book is about... Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, do you guys know approximately, you can guess, how many prophecies He fulfilled in His first coming? And I'm talking predictions from the Old Testament when He came to this planet Earth. How many prophecies do you think that He fulfilled? Yell it out to me. More than yeah, it was more than 300. Got it. How many were thinking like 300? Okay, three of you. Uh, So you guys weren't even close. Some of you probably weren't even close. 300 prophecies, predictions. Now there's this, uh, there's a law, it's called compound probability. And uh, it's how you figure chance factors for someone accidentally fulfilling maybe two or three of these prophecies, these predictions. If I were to make a prediction, you know, for instance, I'm going to say, I'm going to make a prediction. It's going to rain here in Phoenix sometime between now and the end of the year. What do you guys think the odds are? They're pretty good odds, you know, statistically. But what if I were to say, I, it's going to rain on June, in June, in June. Well, that would, that would kind of decrease, but it, it, it might rain in June. But that's, you know, the odds are, are a little less, but not much. But then if I said June 17th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, two inches of rain, I mean, the more I add to those, the less chance that that's going to come to pass. Would you guys agree with that? Now, listen to me. Jesus fulfilled 300 stipulations. Do you think God was trying to get our attention to say, hey, this is the Messiah 300 times? It's amazing. It's amazing when you begin to do the research. In fact, there's a guy who who was, uh, the guy's name is Peter Stoner. That's a cool name. Uh, He's a stoner. Okay. Uh, In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Peter Stoner uh, uh, estimates the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of these messianic prophecies. And he just took eight, and he figured out through compound probability and the chance factor, as being one in 10 in the 17th power. So that's one in 10 in the 17th power. That would be 17 zeros after that. So how overwhelming is this probability? Stoner illustrates this by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state blindfold, blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them come true in any one man from their day to the present time. It is clear that uh, chance had nothing to do with the fulfillment of these 300 predictions. I mean, so, don't check your brains at the door. Think about this. It is wonderfully, powerfully, you know, the prophecy, the predictions. And this is just about Jesus. It has made many other predictions. You read through uh, the book of Daniel's; It's phenomenal. It talks about the, the world-governing empires. And you look at the different predictions that, that Daniel uh, talked about, and I mean, so so it's a phenomenal book. It's prophetically powerful, and uh, but but let me ask you. Why don't you do this for me? Uh, turn to the folks sitting around you, and uh, if there's no one sitting around you, just talk to yourself. And uh, but uh, just ask them this question. And, and and a lot of people get this wrong. And it, it, and if you don't get this right, when you study the Bible. You're not going to get your study right. It's not, going to be, it's not going to be a good, healthy study. You're not going to understand it. Is the Bible primarily man's search for God or God's search for man? Okay, real quick, discuss it. Find out if the person next to you knows the answer to that. Is it primarily man's search for God or God's search for man? Okay, real quick, do it. okay let 's let me do a quick pop quiz here how many How many would say it 's primarily a book of man 's search for God? Show of hands, show of hands okay okay, some of you raised your hand, and we 're going to have to excommunicate you from the church <laughs> because of that because you 're false and it 's wrong it 's heresy, okay. Actually, by the way, that's how most people approach the Bible. I'm just joking with you. It's actually, how many were thinking more, it's God's search for man. God's search for man. Okay, you were right on. And uh, and, now think about this. It's not a book so much about what you must do to be right with God, but it's a book about what God has done to make us right with Him. See, if you read it the other way, it becomes like Aesop's fables. You're looking for the moral of the story. And by the way, if you listen to a lot of the teaching that's being done out there today in American uh, Christianity, that's how most of the teaching is. Okay, boys and girls, here's the little moral of the story. That's not the purpose. Not to say that that we don't learn things. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if the man of God is is adequately equipped for every good work. I mean, I understand that, but that's become secondary to the the primary theme. It's about God coming after you because he loves you. Do you understand to what extent he came to, to this earth to rescue us from the dilemma, the mess we're in? So it's primarily a book about God. And so when you study God's Word, you don't read it like Aesop's fables. If you do, then you're missing the, missing the, big, the big idea, the big E on the I chart. You, you shouldn't read the, read the Bible like Aesop's fables looking for morals, life lessons, but read it craving a glimpse of God that satisfies your soul. The Scriptures are meant to redirect our wandering hearts to their true destination and most satisfying delight, our Lord Jesus Christ. From cover to cover, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about Him. And so the Old Testament are predictions about His coming. New Testament is the fulfillment of those predictions and then making more predictions about His second coming. Oh, my goodness, it's, it's wonderful. So, okay, right there, I gave you, in that first one, it's head sound, it's also heart satisfying. Does that make sense? So oftentimes when I teach, I try to, as I work through this series, I'm going to try to go back and forth between those two. So I showed you, man, it's prophetically powerful. Oh, but my goodness, if you begin to understand it's about God rescuing us and loving us and reaching out to us, then when you read it, 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 you're going to read it differently. You read it completely differently. Um. Otherwise, it just becomes how you need to do more. You need to try harder. You're not doing enough for God. It becomes one of those kind of things. And there's plenty of churches out there that do that. You walk away beat up. Listen, when you walk out of here, I want you to have had an encounter with the living Lord and Savior who loves you and is coming after you and gave his life for you. And that's going to change you. That's what changes your life. That's what ultimately changes you. If you're not experiencing much change, you need to get back to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And we'll talk more about that as we work through. Okay. Now it's remarkably reliable with manuscript evidence. And so we're kind of looking at the fuller context, both the Old and New Testament here. Uh, all scripture, all scripture is God breathed, profitable for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God is fully equipped for every good work. 1 uh, Peter 1 24-25 says this that the grass withers and the flowers fade but my word will last forever I remember I was on the fire department I, we just came back from a real critical call it was really a messed up deal and gave me the opportunity to share a little bit of my faith my co-worker, which, uh, my senior firefighter was a gal and I was sharing with her a little bit about how people really need to probably get back to what the Bible teaches I think that if they would begin to live their life according to what God's speaking and encounter the God of the Bible and begin to share those kind of things with her and she said to me you can't believe the Bible. It's been lost in translation. It's been passed on from generation to generation. It doesn't even probably even mean what it meant, you know, from its original source. And so here's my response. This is how you should respond. My response was, when did you come to that conclusion? Was that after you compared our modern day translations with uh, the early manuscripts? And she goes, Huh? And she didn't even know what a manuscript was or a modern-day translation. What the heck is that? Do you even have a Bible? Well, no, I really don't. Well, yeah, I think I might have one somewhere. What the heck are you even thinking? What are you saying? And so I pistol-whooped her right there, right there in the... Well, I didn't do that, but I just go, I didn't say that. I didn't, I'm not responding. I didn't respond to her like I'm saying to you guys. I was much nicer. <laughs> Praise God. We're praying for you, Pastor Ray. Thank you. I need a lot of prayer. But uh, I felt like it. But uh, I was like, what? That's a, you know, I didn't say this, but I was thinking, that's a doctrine of the demons. Because there's a lot of people that believe that. And then when you begin to challenge them and you say, wait, 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 have you, have you, have you taken out time to really uh, compare the modern translations with manuscript evidence that we have? And most people don't even know what you're talking about. The Bible is without question the single best documented piece of ancient literature there is. If you have a, a good modern translation of the Bible, you have almost exactly what the ancient authors wrote. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable if you do any kind of research on this. Uh, in the New Testament, there's about 14,000 ancient copies with fragments and, and along with... Now, we don't have the originals because they were on uh, biodegradable... Uh, what was the, What was the name of the papyrus yeah, and it was and and so we don 't have that, but we have enough of these uh translations and uh comparisons that they they have been able to go almost right back specific it's it 's amazing with uh and in fact uh one of the, the part of the research that I did on this is that uh, the, the through the some of the original books, letters, along with translations and writings of the church fathers to compare them with, and they say it's unbelievable the accuracy that we have. That's just New Testament. The Old Testament, there was a discovery back in 1947. Anybody know what that discovery was? Yeah, Dead Sea Scrolls. And they thought now, up to that point, we had uh, manuscripts that dated AD 900. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls actually pushed the dating of that a thousand years earlier. And most experts immediately thought, oh, we're going to discredit the Bible. No, it only validated the Bible. And these are are manuscripts that dated a thousand years earlier than the manuscript evidence that we had. And it only validated uh, what we have. So, So it is remarkably reliable with manuscript evidence. The Bible... "...has withstood vicious attacks by its enemies, as no other book has. Many have tried to burn it and ban it and outlaw it from the days of the Roman empires, emperors to the present-day communist countries, yet the Bible continues to outlive its cruelest opponents." The Bible is infinitely indestructible. A story that I share in our game of life is this one on uh, about uh, Voltaire, the French philosopher, did not accept the tenets of Christianity, and although he acknowledged the existence of a force greater than man, he didn't believe in the claims of Christ. Voltaire uh, predicted Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history within a hundred years of his lifetime. Voltaire died in 1778 Fifty years later, the Geneva Bible Society moved into his house and used his printing press to produce thousands of Bibles that were distributed worldwide so uh, so it 's really interesting uh, grass withers, flowers fade, but my word will last will stand forever that 's first peter one twenty four through twenty five and uh, there 's an interesting uh, in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, you guys familiar with it when Jesus finished up with the Sermon on the Mount? And he makes this co- comparison between two guys. One builds his house upon the what? The sand, and one builds his house upon the what? The rock, so sand and rock. He makes this contrast. And what's interesting about this contrast is that both heard his words, but the one that built his house upon the rock applied his words to his life. Therefore, he had this... Uh, this uh, home, this life that was unshakable, unbreakable to the storms of life, where the other one had built his house upon the sand. Uh, look up here just for a minute. You got to get this. Uh, your life is going to be tested. You're going to have things that's going to happen to your life that you're going to be you're going to be devastated. That's life. And the t- test will be, is your life built on sand or rock? I see it happen all the time. As your pastor, I love you. I-, I, want, I want your home to still be standing when you go through crisis and difficulty, but it won't if you don't know the God of this book and are applying these truths to your life and living these out each and every day and gathering regularly with other Christians so that you're building this equity so that you can get through the storms. You're going to have storms. I see people all the time crash and burn. I mean, that's part of my job is to kind of go in there and kind of help them. But, but a lot of these people, that crash and burn because their house is built on sand. They heard God's word. They went to church. You know, when they felt like it, it was just like, oh, well, whatever. And then, and then devastation came into their life. I didn't have that on your notes. You can put that in there. Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Really comes down to, so there's the, so I gave you the, the head part, it's head sound, but it's heart satisfying. Man, build your life upon this book. Build your life upon the God of this book. And it will be unshakable, unbreakable. When, it's not if, but when you have devastating, devastating things happen in your life. Okay, here's the next one. So E, so P, R. E, so it's prophetically powerful, remarkably reliable, with manuscript evidence. And then it's established by eyewitness accounts. If you were with us last weekend, I gave you some evidence for the resurrection, and we talked about early accounts, empty tomb, eyewitnesses, so this kind of goes along with that, and then the emergence of the church. That's what he's saying here. He's saying these were, not, we're not following cleverly devised myths. We didn't make this stuff up. We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. That's what he's saying. And I begin to go through the scripture and pick out times when people encountered Jesus. And they begin to it dawned on them uh, who this was. And in fact, here's what I found interesting is that many saw him, saw Jesus, but few were seized by him. Many come to church week in and week out and hear about Jesus, but very few are really captivated by him. Now listen to the the words of those that were really captivated by him as eyewitnesses. We have seen his glory, declared John, John chapter 1, verse 14. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, proclaims John the Baptist, John chapter 1, verse 29. I have seen the Lord, exclaimed Mary Magdalene, John chapter 20, verse 18. My Lord and my God, who said that? It was Thomas, doubting Thomas. After the resurrection, he, he put his hands where, in his wounds. He goes, oh, my Lord and oh my God. Eyewitnesses. That's found in John 20, 28. Were not our hearts burning within us while we talked? Rejoiced the two Emmaus-bound disciples. Luke twenty four thirty two. Now listen to me. One glimpse. One glimpse of His majesty and you are forever consumed with the desire to see more of Him and to say more about Him. That's what they experienced. We can experience the same thing as we encounter the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit as revealed through God's Word. So it's it's amazing. In fact, one glimpse of his majesty and going through the motions spiritually is no longer an option. Pleasure seeking is no longer needed. Your life becomes a magnificent obsession with a heavenly treasure and it's why many of the first century uh, Christians were willing to be tortured to death proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrected Lord and Savior of that gospel. They gave their lives. They were eyewitnesses. We have their accounts right here. We can read and and go through them. So it's amazing. And when you begin to study what many of them, how they were tortured for their faith, it's it's crazy. Some of them were dipped in tar and lit on fire to light up the courtyards of, of crazy Nero. Some of them were were tied to horses going opposite directions and their limbs were pulled off their bodies. Um, some, you guys know, they were thrown to lions. And, and um, church history says that they were proclaiming and praising God in the midst of that. How, how would the world you do that? How in the world would you be able to face that kind of uh, Persecution because we have seen His majesty. And that's how you do it. These are not cunningly devised fables, but we have, been, we have seen His majesty. We have encountered the God of the Bible. And uh, and that's, that's, that's what happened to them, and, and that's part of the evidence. That's why I liked what I shared last week in Blaise Pascal. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I believe them. And, uh, and by the way, if you want to study, uh, a lot of times people will say, oh, these are just, uh, these are legends. You know, these are just legends. You know, the gospel accounts about Jesus, these are legends. And, you know, the Da Vinci Code and all that, they were trying to say, this is legends. And so now we have the, uh, these other gospels, the Gnostic gospels, that are actually telling us a more accurate account of Jesus, which are fraudulent and they're messed up. And if you did any kind of research and didn't commit intellectual suicide like most people do and just buy into that, uh, you would begin to see that they're fraudulent they're messed up and, and that these aren't legends. And in fact, uh, there's plenty of evidence that these could not be legends that were made up later, but true eyewitness accounts. In fact, as I said last week, they were written too early to be that. Uh, also, the content is too counterintuitive. Uh, Counterproductive. When you really study these accounts, if they were really procl- you know, promoting Jesus, they wouldn't have put a lot of the negative things that they put in the, the gospel accounts about Jesus. For instance, Jesus' own family thought that he was what? Cuckoo. They thought he was a nutjob. But only later on for his brother James to be converted and then write scripture. So that's, that's unbelievable. What about this? What about your Savior being in the garden saying, God, let this cup pass from me? I mean, he's pretty anxious. He's sweating drops of blood. That doesn't put him in very good light. And what about when he's hanging on the cross? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that doesn't make much sense if he's the Messiah. And yet they wrote that because it was true, because that happened. And oh, what about the, the first eyewitnesses? Who are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Savior? Women. Oh, my goodness. What? You've got to be kidding. Women? You can't trust women. Well, that's how they felt in those days. And in fact, what's interesting, in, in a, a woman's uh, testimony was not admissible in court. And, uh, and yet, those were the first eyewitnesses. Why would they put that in the, in, in the, the gospel accounts? Because it happened. So, So it was written too early, content is too counterproductive, and literary form is too detailed. C.S. Lewis, who, world-class literary uh, expert, critic, he said, this form of writing was unheard of. This form of writing didn't happen but about, start happening about 300 years ago. So he said, this has to be eyewitness accounts because it's too detailed. So so there's plenty of evidence as you kind of work through that uh, because it's eyewitness accounts. The next one is archaeologically accurate. It's archaeologically accurate. I, I talked about uh, when uh, Paul, before King Agrippa and Governor Festus last weekend, uh, he said that these things were not done in a corner. And let me just, let me reemphasize this real quick, is that uh, when you compare Christianity, the major cults and religions of our world today, uh, all those other belief systems were done in a corner somewhere. It was usually an individual had an encounter with God and they come up with this whole new belief system. Christianity was not done in a corner. In fact, this we're talking. In fact, even Paul said, there were some five hundred plus people that encountered Jesus. These folks encountered him, walked with him. This was public knowledge. So Joseph Smith, funny little spectacles, gets these golden plates. Nobody's ever been able to find. God, he interpreted. He comes up with this whole new belief system. There's really no witnesses to that. Nobody else had that same encounter. With the Bible, with the Scripture, a lot of people encountered the resurrected Lord. A lot of people were having that same experience, and they all documented it and wrote it down. That's why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. we got the book of Acts. So it wasn't done in a corner somewhere. That's what he says. You look at Islam, same thing, done in the corner. I mean, uh, when you look at... Uh, all these major religions, they came out from some guy that had some so-called experience with God. I'm just challenging you. You've got to think a little bit about this, and you've got to look at it, and you begin to compare it with Christianity. And I'm telling you, Christianity sets itself apart from all the major religions of our world today, and particularly in this area of archaeological accuracy. Um, The Bible makes hundreds of references to historical events, places, and people, so there's plenty of opportunity for contradiction with archaeological discoveries, yet there have never been any contradiction or inconsistency. Archaeology has been called the, the Bible's best friend, a statement that reflects the long history of discoveries supportive of biblical record. Incidentally... Uh, The Book of Mormon, when it is subjected to the test of historicity through archaeology, fails embarrassingly. The Book of Mormon contains the story of a vast civilization that supposedly existed in the Americas between approximately 600 B.C. and 400 A.D., it records the names of tribes and cities and mountains and rivers and coinages of that civilization. Most Mormons believe it, yet not one single historian inside or outside the Mormon church has been able to produce a single piece of artifact or evidence that would substantiate any of the claims of the book. So it's, it's, it's really quite interesting. Um, how many are familiar with the term canon, canon of Scripture? You guys familiar with that term? Basically, the word canon means a measuring rod, and it speaks of the distinctive marks of divine authority, authorship, and authenticity. Because people will ask, well, what makes these books God's books, you know? And what separates these books from other books? Well, it's called canon of Scripture. And so you can study it. You can go to gotquestions.org. That's one word, gotquestions.org. And they'll show you really the authority, the authorship, and the authenticity and the criteria that was used to identify that these were truly from God and that's what would separate it from all these other books that would that people would claim that are from God. The church didn't invent this, the canon of Scripture, any more than Sir Isaac Newton invented the force of gravity. He recognized it and received it. And so we did the same. And when you go through that criteria, you begin to say, "Wow, well, yeah, it fits that criteria. It's not pretty obvious. This is God. He's speaking to us. There's no doubt... No doubt about it. Um, And then the next one is, it's credited by millions of changed lives. And you'll notice that in our text, we go back to our text, he talks about this. there's this power. He says, when uh, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 19, he refers to Jesus as the morning star. And then verse 21, men spoke from God. And then Hebrews 4.12, great cross-reference, it says, all Scripture is, uh, is, or God's Word is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And then, of course, we know Romans 1.16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I mean, that makes sense. If this is God speaking to us, it's going to bring life change. If you're interacting with the Creator of the heavens and the earth, He speaks to you, He's going to transform your life. There's a couple different ways that uh, this happens in people's lives. One way is kind of the route that I had to go. I was raised in a Pentecostal background where it was typically more uh, right brain, more relational, more experiential. And so when I hit my high school years, I really needed to know is there any good foundation for my faith? So I had to do the research and it just validated it. I came to a place, kind of a fork in the road, and said, yeah, (laughs) this is God's Word. And Jesus is, is God. And I'm going to give my life to him. And I never looked back since. But I had to do that. That's, that, that's what we're doing through this, through this series. The one is painstaking historical research to test the authenticity of the historical record. And that's what these verses talk about. But there's another way. My wife never had to do this. The other way that you can encounter Christ is uh, divine truth can be self-authenticating. She just opened her heart to Jesus and she encountered Jesus. And it was self-authenticating. It's like seeing the sun and knowing that it's light and not dark. She was proclaimed, they proclaimed the gospel to her in this Assembly of God church that she came to where we met, and she... uh, Uh, she began to see Jesus. And and as he was saying here, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. She was, her heart was captivated by the majesty of who Jesus was and it began to change everything about her life. So so her route was, it was self-authenticating. She encountered Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. Mine was I heard the proclamation of the gospel, but I needed to do the research. But the more I did the research, the more it validated, well, Jesus is truly more desirable than any person I've ever come across or encountered. I want him to be at the center of my life. So does that make sense? So there's kind of those two different ways of encountering Him. That's why when Paul or Peter writes to the second-generation Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And they had not been eyewitnesses of him, second-generation Christians, and yet they had, been, they had been told the gospel, and they encountered this Jesus of the gospel, and it revolutionized their life, and they had this unspeakable and glorious unglorious joy. Um, so what is it that changes our lives? Credited by millions of changed lives. What is it that ultimately changes our lives? You hear me make this distinction all the time. Is it a moral restrained will or is it a supernaturally transformed heart? And I would say it's the latter. It's, it's not a morally restrained will out of fear and pride, but it's a supernaturally transformed heart because your heart has been smitten by the beauty and the glory of the majesty of Jesus. That's, that's what transforms our lives. So, so let me ask you this real quick. Okay, we're running out of time this morning. They don't have a clock up here, and so I have to keep coming over here and looking. And so we're right at the top of the hour. We're almost finished up, but I want you to turn to the folks next to you. And this is real critical. This is another one of those questions about uh, really having your life transformed. Does it go like this, that if you live as you should, God will bless you? Or is it that God has blessed us, therefore we will live as we should? Okay, real quick, real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Which one is it? Which one is it? Okay. So, you guys got that one? I hope you're getting that one because that's what desert breeze is all about. It's not about the the first, because the first you can people experience change all the time out of fear and pride. It's extrinsic motivation. That's not what it is. Supernaturally transformed heart. If you're expecting if your expectation of God's blessing is based on how well you feel you're living the Christian life, which by the way, most of us probably live there and really struggle with that. You don't understand God's grace. It's not. Now listen to me. That that is not, this is not the gospel. Live as you should, and God will bless you. Here's the gospel. God has wonderfully blessed you. He sent his son to this earth to die for you, to rescue you. As a result of that, when that gets a hold of your heart, you will begin to live more and more as you should. Does that make sense? Okay, so what if I'm really struggling and living how I should? Get back to the reality of who Jesus is and begin to live more and more. See, it's it's your justification that determines your sanctification. Sanctification is your wholeness, and so it's living as you should. But it's your justification that determines that. It's not the other way around. It's not live as you should, and then God will bless you. No, do you have any idea how much he's blessed you already? Listen, nothing, nothing will separate you from his love. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's guaranteed by the cross. But see, listen, some of you are looking at me like, yeah, but yeah, but don't you have to? No, 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 listen. Even when you screw up, he's still there, he still loves you. Now, why do we do the disciplines? Why are you motivated to do the Why do you come to church? It's because you want to increase your capacity to experience more of what he's already provided for you. Because our natural inclination is not to believe that. It's not to believe that he's for me and not against me. We spend most of our life struggling with the reality of that. Listen, he is for you, not against you. He bankrupt heaven. He came to this world to rescue us. Now, when that gets a hold of your life, you'll never be the same. You won't want to live your whole life for him. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to live a perfect life. But when you struggle and you have tough times, you come back to your identity being in him. See that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Oh my goodness, it is amazing! <laughs> it is amazing when you understand how much He loves us, and and you begin to cultivate that practicing of His presence and that He's more than enough. And as we said last weekend, remember past sins forgiven, present problems conquered, future secure. I mean, what more do you need? I mean, that's that's the gospel. Okay, that just it gets me. Excited, and I love, I love talking about how good God is and what He's done for us. And so, okay, where where are we in all of this? Oh, oh, credited by millions of changed lives. We talked about that. Okay, honored by early historians. We're we're about wrapped up here. And uh, I gave you another historian, Dr. Luke. He talks about how he did all sorts of research and interviewed people and. And how important it was for him to to get the evidence down, and he talks about it in, in the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, he wrote both of those. There are many well known respected first century historians who supported biblical uh, history. I gave you the first three are really uh, secular they 're non Christian and they talked about Jesus and this miracle man and a lot of things that he did. also the next three are are, are Christian writers that talked about him. There is overwhelming evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ both in secular and biblical uh, history. In fact, we can almost reconstruct the gospel just from early non-Christian sources. That's how much information is out there. And as I said at the very beginning, so, so here we go. So the Bible, prophetically powerful, remarkably reliable with manuscript evidence, Uh, established by eyewitness accounts, archaeologically accurate, credited by millions of changed lives, honored by, by early historians. I also said it's scientifically sound. I don't have time to even go through that. There's tons of information that shows that and proves that. It also gives us wisdom that works. Why do you think Dave Ramsey has done so well? You guys familiar with Dave Ramsey's principles? What are they based on? It's the Bible. He's teaching. I know people that aren't even Christians. Listen, they're headed to hell, but they can balance their checkbook, okay? And they can do that because they're basically using uh, the biblical principles. It gives us wisdom that works. You apply the wisdom of this book to your life, you can have success. You might not know the God of this book, but there can be phenomenal success in that. Um, And then as we talk about history, let me wrap it up. I'm going to give you a couple uh, quotes and then we'll pray and, and you guys will be out of here. But history, history, all of history, all of history is his story. The underlying uh, story below all the big, all the different stories, there's a lot of different stories throughout the Bible, but the big story is creation, fall, redemption, restoration of Jesus Christ. Creation, we were created in the image of God, we messed up, we fell, and immediately God began to work to send his son to rescue us, and so you got uh, redemption, and then restoration is he's going to restore the heavens and the earth. He's going to come back, set up his kingdom on this planet earth pretty amazing. That, that's, that's the story. I love how uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones from the Jesus Story Bible puts it. Let me just finish you with these two quotes from her, and I love it. And by the way, I'd encourage you to get this. This would just be good for you to read and then hang on to it for your kids or your grandkids or whoever else. But it's the Sally Lloyd-Jones, the, the Jesus Story Bible, uh, subtitled, Every Story Whispers His Name. And this is what she says in describing and this. This is kind of the last note I want to leave you with: is that the Bible isn't a book of rules or heroes as much as it's a, a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace to rescue the one he loves. I love that. That's the gospel. That's what this book is all about. Here's another quote from her. The Bible is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. That's Jesus. We're his lost treasure. I love it. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So God, as we work through this series, wow, there's plenty of evidence tilting the the scale beyond a reasonable doubt that this book is from you. And that we can encounter you and we can, we can walk with you and we can know you. And God, I pray that the value of this book has increased substantially in the hearts and lives of people that have been here in this first service. And, uh, and God, uh, God, help us to see that when, when we encounter you in the story of Jesus, we get swept up into a story of such cosmic drama and beauty that we, that we are forever changed. And help us to realize that as Christians, that we have been made a character in and a carrier of this great story of redemption through our Savior, Jesus, of cosmic proportions. So, God, as we encounter you and walk with you and know you through your word, then may we live that out in our lives so that many more will come to faith in you through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with me? Here's your blessing. So, I'll give you a chance to stand up. I'll take a little drink here. Here's your blessing. So as you this next week begin to read God's word unlike you ever have before. By the way, how many have U version? You guys familiar with U version? Download it, put it on your phone. You don't have to read it, it will read it for you. I mean, I, re- I, go through about, uh, I go through the Bible a couple times, three times a year just doing that. So as you read and you study and you meditate and reflect on God's Word this ne- next week, may it be more faith-producing, hope-restoring, love-awakening in your life unlike ever before as you encounter and have intimacy with our infinite God who loved us and gave Himself for us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you.